0: This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you. Backed by popular demand, I guess. I had nowhere else to be, and neither did you. The sun is not out. It is San Diego. It's nice outside. I hope you stretched your legs a little bit. They started the clock already. I haven't even warmed up. Okay. Once again, I would like to thank Ted Rosen for the kind invitation, Rose Hawker for organizing things as well, and most importantly, Eileen Cheever. I neglected to mention her name yesterday, but she and I have had contact in the last year, and I really want to thank her personally from the stage for the kind invitation to come. I can't forget her name because there's someone in my life very dear to me with the same first name, Eileen. I think it's great, so Eileen, I thank you. Ted, wherever the hell you are, Rose, ditto as well. We took a minute for that. I'm gonna take a little extra time. Okay, welcome, welcome. Greetings once again from Cleveland. We covered, is there a shout out? There are some Clevelanders here somewhere. Uh, I'll do a quick shout out to them. Raise your hand, do a dance, come up and join me if you'd like. But it's the home of you know who. It's also the home of John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller years past, and Paul Newman. And for those with an interest, I can elaborate about that later, after the spiel. Okay, you got it. Come visit, preferably in the summer. The topic for the next 45 minutes, give or take, is endocrine conditions and the skin. Let's begin with, I have no conflicts of interest, none whatsoever. You know that? Let's begin with a few simple questions. 10 seconds, dot, 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 dot. The percent of the U.S. population with diabetes. 10, 35, 50, or 75. Hit the buttons. We could, we could dance to the music. I can do two-step and tango. Yeah. Next, number two. Oh, that was a, Wait. Oh, I'm sorry. What was this? Choice was B. Number two. Most common skin manifestation of diabetes. Intotrigo, acanthosis nigricans, necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum or diabetic dermopathy shin spots music survey says not bad stay tuned number 3 regarding calciphylaxis all of the following are true except occurs primarily in women occurs primarily with patients with end-stage renal disease. It has a good prognosis. Affects fatty muscular areas. Affects fatty tissue. Survey says, oh, not bad. Not bad. We'll cover that one too. Okay, Four. The only porphyria without skin manifestation or skin expression. Acute intermittent porphyria, AIP. Porphyria cutanea tarta. Mixed porphyria. Variegate porphyria. Music. I don't care. It's five somewhere. <coughs> Survey says... Okay, we'll talk about that one later also. Okay, let's continue. That, that, that's good, hopefully you'll get something out of the next 40, 45 minutes. Okay, let's begin. Most of the next 45 minutes, give or take, will cover the skin and diabetes, because diabetes is the big elephant in the room as far as skin manifestations of endocrine disorders. And diabetes, you could look at it as the sweet sickness. I lifted this from U.S. News & World Report a few years back. But basically, it's just the scenario. Food goes in, it's converted to glucose, it's either stored in the liver or it makes its way to the bloodstream. In the bloodstream, it meets up with that friendly hormone known as insulin, secreted by the pancreas. Insulin is needed to transport the glucose to cells to function, etc. And in diabetes, either there's not enough insulin or too much insulin or there's a breakdown in the mechanism to transport it to cells and the insulin and the glucose start to accumulate in blood vessels uh, and then it starts to affect major organs. The heart in particular for coronary artery disease and hypertension, uh, the eyes for retinopathy, microvascular disease, the kidneys leading to perhaps hypertension and end-stage renal disease in concert with the diabetes and obviously uh, neuropathy can ensue, amputation, et cetera. It just gives you a scenario of what diabetes can do to the body as a whole, not just the skin, but since we're all skin related, we're going to focus on that. Data for the states, just the United States, there are more than 30 million people in the United States with diabetes. That is approximately 10% of the population, give or take. There is another 6 million who have the diagnosis, who have diabetes, and they don't know it. It's smoldering around. They don't know it. They are dealing with it as well as they can, but they don't know it. Either they haven't brought themselves to a doc. things haven't really caused them to stumble, per se. They just don't know. And then catch this. There are probably about 50 to 60 million people in the States who are pre-diabetic. They are flirting with the condition. If things don't go well, they will kick themselves into diabetes. If they don't start exercising, if they don't lose weight, if they don't listen to their docs, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, they will kick themselves into diabetes. So, 30 million plus with it, 6 million with it and they don't know, and another 50 to 60 probably going to happen. Clearly, the leading co- uh, a leading cause of death, primarily heart disease, kidney disease, uh, myocardial disease, Diabetes can kill, and if it doesn't do that, it's going to lead to perhaps blindness, neuropathy, um, vasculopathy, etc. Just looking at some financial statistics, the cost of care of foot ulcers related to diabetes, just foot ulcers, skin breaks down, you have a hole in your foot, you see the podiatrist, the vascular surgeon, the orthopedic guy, inpatient, outpatient, $9 billion as of two, three years ago. Amputations, if it goes from the foot ulcer to amputation, the cost of that is about $3 billion in this country. That's not million, that's billion. Just puts it into quick perspective, and that's irrespective of those diabetics who are in the hospital for other reasons. Major types of diabetes falls into four categories. Type two is the most important, but type one affects about 5, 6, 7% of the population. It's primarily autoimmune. Uh, Beta cells are destroying themselves and not being able to produce insulin. So that is the autoimmune component of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and most folks don't have that. Most folks have type 2 diabetes. True insulin deficiency or resistance. It affects about 90, 95% of the population. And clearly and strongly, it's related to obesity, period. End of discussion. What's the percentage of the folks in this country who are obese? A number. you're close. It's actually 30%, give or take. And the number of people in this country who are uh, just overweight, it's about two-thirds of the population. So two-thirds of the population is overweight, and half of that group is truly obese by definition. So type 2 diabetes strongly related to obesity, strongly related, and also to a lack of exercise. A lot of folks just become couch potatoes as time goes on. They work hard, they come home, they pick up the clicker, sit in front of the tube, they don't do anything else. They need to go out and walk, ride a bike, get a dog, walk the dog around the block, take the stairs up and down, watch what they eat, be a little bit more active, take the stairs. Here instead of the escalator, it's doable, it's possible. Another type of diabetes is the other category that falls into the class of endocrinopathy. No big deal, very small percentage of people there. And then gestational diabetes can occur in women during pregnancy. It usually self-corrects, life goes on. Regardless of the type of diabetes, most patients experience fatigue, decreased or blurred vision, an increased sense of thirst, and an increased tendency to go to the bathroom and pee, increased urination. Okay, you got the gist. Risk factors for diabetes, clearly a family history, And then race, ethnic background also plays a part. Much more common in Native American Indians in this country, much more common in African American individuals in in this country, and much more common in Latinos or Hispanics. Asians less so, but a little bit more so in all four categories compared to the white individual who comes from Europe, for example. Environmental factors, it usually kicks in past the age of 45 or 50 give or take, obesity I already mentioned, gestational diabetes I already mentioned, and it's also in close concert with abnormal lipids in the system and also hypertension. One can lead to the other and the other can lead to the first one. Just some general risk factors, most of you know this. Now we're gonna swing into the skin. Skin disease and diabetes very closely linked. Approximately 30, almost 50% of all patients with diabetes will have some manifestation affecting their skin, some skin condition that we know is associated with diabetes. So it's not rare, it's actually fairly common. 30 to 50 percent of patients with diabetes at some point during their time with the diabetes. Skin disease may actually precede it, be a precursor to the diagnosis of diabetes. And you and I can be a little bit of the hero and say, you know, I see something on your skin makes me think of diabetes. Have you seen your doc? Have you had your glucose checked? Is there a family history of diabetes? No, no, no. Maybe they should have a glucose level. Maybe they should see their family doc, etc. Regarding type 1 diabetes, you see a little bit more of autoimmune diseases associated with type 1, and you see a lot more cutaneous infections with type 2 diabetes. Probably 20 to 40 percent of patients with type 2 diabetes will have an infection at some point in their life and I'll come to that a little later. Long-term complications, I alluded to this. Big vessel complications, coronary artery disease, cerebral disease, and peripheral vascular disease. So it's the heart, the head, and the legs and the extremities primarily. Think of legs, think of hands, feet, think of the foot in particular. Then microvascular complications, retinopathy, vasculopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, So it's big vessels can be affected, small vessels can be affected, primarily because of excess circulating glucose and insulin in those systems. Okay. What are the main manifestations seen on the skin with type 1 diabetes? Again, this type of diabetes only affects about 5-6% of the population who have diabetes. And most of the conditions listed here are sort of in that autoimmune immunologic category. And I'll go through these one by one. Rubiosis. Ruddy complexion, ruddy red face. I could sell this picture easily as simply someone from uh, Northern Europe, Scandinavia, the UK, Germany, and say, yeah, just the way his skin is. Light complexion, prominent blood vessels. And that's just the way it is, a normal variant. That's one consideration. Number two, I could sell it as rosacea. Makes sense. Telangiectatic rosacea, think of that. I could sell this as someone with carcinoid, with that flushed look, which might be generalized. So this is a rosy red face, primarily some telangiectasias. The erythema may wax and wane, but honestly, it's very common in diabetics, and obviously in fair skinned white skinned middle aged folks, you can see it a little bit better. It affects about 50% of patients, men a little bit more so than women, and it does correlate with the control of uh, the diabetes. The better the control, less redness. The poorer the control, um, the more prominent redness there is. What to do? Make up for a woman, for a guy, he may just be inclined to live with it. You can hit it with a laser. You can use uh, um, vermonidine, as you know that as Merveso, the topical product for rosacea, which helps with the redness. Or you just deal with it and life goes on. Necrobiosis lipoidica, also known as necro-like Uh, necrobiosis, leportica diabeticorum. Now it's just the two words. I really think this is somewhat pathognomonic for diabetes. If you see a patient with this, that patient has diabetes. It only affects about one, two, maybe three, tops 5% of patients with diabetes. And when it occurs, it's primarily women to a marked degree. But of all the patients with NLD, most of them, 60% is a conservative number. Probably 70, 80, 85% of them have diabetes. And if they don't, they soon will or they have a positive family history of it. It affects primarily the shins, not the calves, not the thighs, primarily the shins. It can occur elsewhere. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else except the shins. Cross your fingers and hope that the areas don't ulcerate. They can with simple trauma because these plaques are indeed atrophic They're multicolored, orange-brown in color, but they are atrophic, a bang, a bump, a bruise can create a hole, and it's a bear to heal because of the shin. Poor vasculature, atrophy already. It's not good. Care for this, leg elevation, topical steroids maybe if the areas are red and inflamed, intralesional steroids to the edges if they're a little bit actively inflamed around the annular corner. And then unfortunately about half of the patients develop a retinopathy, so it goes hand in hand. So if you see someone with this, think of diabetes. If you see someone with this, ask about diabetes in the family and maybe shunt them to their friendly eye doc for an exam. Bulleye. Bullis Diabeticorum, the blisters of diabetes. This is very, very rare, very uncommon. Hardly occurs at all. I think I've seen this once or twice, supposedly in the last 20 years. Primarily affects men, hands and feet, feet a little bit more so. They occur spontaneously. There is no immunologic basis for this whatsoever. You can do a biopsy, but please don't, it's unnecessary because the whole process resolves very quickly in about two three weeks, maybe a month at most. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, so think about other things. Trauma, friction, an immune blistering disease, maybe bullous impetigo, but don't get carried away. If you've got a young diabetic, it's a guy, this is probably the case. Just sit tight for a week or two, it'll go away. You might want to just Puncture the blister with a sterile needle just to relieve some of the pressure. Let the blister collapse. Do not unroof the blister. Life is good, life goes on. Vitiligo. Primarily a cosmetic disease. It affects about 1, almost 2% of the population, and it's a condition characterized by depigmentation. It occurs in people of all ages, primarily younger people. Usually it declares itself by about the age of 20, give or take, can be orificial around openings on the body, the eyes, the mouth, the nose, uh, the penis, the anus, the vaginal area, or it can be extensor on the elbows, the the elbows, hands, knees, and feet. Again, primarily cosmetic. Disease link is very tenuous, and when it occurs, it's often linked, it's occasionally linked with diabetes, pernicious anemia, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and Addison's disease. So those are the autoimmune Uh, autoimmunologic conditions that vitiligo is linked with, and in diabetes, it's linked with diabetes maybe 1% to 5% of the time. Periungal telangiectasia, not exactly a condition that I think of very commonly with diabetes. We think about it much more so with connective tissue disease, dermatomyositis, lupus, but actually about half of patients with type 1 diabetes have periungal telangiectasia, and if you look closely enough, you'll see it. But again, there aren't that many patients with type 1 diabetes. They have nail fold erythema, the periungal prominent blood vessels. The cuticles may be a little ragged. I mean, guys pick their nails, they chew on them, etc. That's ragged enough as it is. Uh, and it represents a microangiopathy. So this is just something to look for if you're interested or curious in patients with type 1 diabetes. Lichen planus, we know what that is. Itch, itchy red papules on the skin with some streaks in the mouth and occasionally on the tongue. Don't really think of diabetes and oral lichen planus, but there is a link in the literature, but it's actually a flipped link. the the statistics come from patients who had lichen planus, the oral variety, and then how many of those patients had diabetes? Not the flip side. How many patients with diabetes have oral lichen planus? So here the link is rather tenuous. If you have a patient with lichen planus, you might ask about diabetes, but not vice versa. And this is a nice disease. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often, but it can be a little scary because it's an erysipelas-like erythema, a cellulitis-like erythema. Primarily in older patients, men and women, who have had their diabetes for a long while. Again, primarily, Type 1 diabetes, so this looks like cellulitis, kind of smells like cellulitis, but the patients aren't ill. They're not systemically affected or infected, and you really don't need to do anything. You can slap on a topical steroid, you can put on an emollient. If you really must, you can treat with an oral antibiotic, but no matter what, it's gonna go away on its own pretty quickly. Now we're gonna come to the meat of the 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 meat of the matter with diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, and skin disease. Here's the list. I'll go through them one by one, showing good representative examples of them and what the import of each one is. Type 2 affecting about 90% of the population with diabetes. Diabetic dermopathy or shin spots, very, very common. Probably the most common skin manifestation of diabetes. These are small uh, atrophic plaques, usually on the shins can be on the thighs and the forearms as well. Usually in an adult, a little bit more so in men than women. Very, very common, but not specific, not specific for diabetes. It can occur in the general population in folks who do not have diabetes. Again, the location is the shins. Don't need to do a biopsy. It probably uh, represents a microangiopathy. Treatment for this, support stockings if they're a bit edematous, lubrication, topical steroids if you want. Occasionally, they're actually linked with pigmented purpuric dermatosis, dermatosis, i.e. Schamberg's disease, and if you have that, it's often in a patient with diabetes and heart disease. Just a little bit of a pearl there. Uh, But very, very common, probably the most common manifestation of diabetes. Acanthosis nigricans. These are the dirty plaques on the neck, under the arms, and in the groin. It looks like the skin needs to be washed. These plaques are very common in obesity, very common in an insulin-resistant disease, primarily diabetes. They're also common in, in certain uh, ethnic groups. They're fairly common in uh, Hispanics, especially in young men. Probably affects about 30 to 35% of that population. Native American Indians as well. Can occur with certain medications, diethylstilbestrol, systemic corticosteroids, DES, which is now off the market can be inherited as an autosomal dominant condition, and can be a sign, the from frost, of a GI malignancy, especially in someone who doesn't have insulin resistance or diabetes, is older, is losing weight, etc., and the GI malignancy is the stomach. But for the sake of discussion this afternoon, this is a very common sign, expression of type 2 diabetes, primarily in someone who's chunky, portly, occurs on the neck and under the arms. What to do? Emollients keratolytics, topical retinoids, et cetera, maybe laser, maybe weight reduction, better control of diabetes, and this will fade away. Diabetic thick skin. This is interesting to remember. Diabetic thick skin occurs fairly commonly in the diabetic population, affecting about 30, 35%. Roughly one in three diabetics have thick skin. If you look at these hands, these are not the hands of a manual laborer, not the hand of a worker. Some guy who's working with his hands in the, in the auto repair shop or anything like that. These are the hands of a diabetic. Now, it's very subtle, can be asymptomatic. You might not even appreciate it, but it becomes clinically apparent over time over the back of the hands and the back of the fingers. And then it can really march on to be thick hyperkeratotic plaques on the hands and often the feet, elbows, and knees as well. 20 to 30% of patients... Happens in type 1 also, but more so in type 2 diabetes. They have the pebbled look on the skin, lichenoid plaques, usually asymptomatic, but if somebody sees it, they start to rub and scratch. Might be actually become more lichenified and more dermatitic. In time, contractures will develop and there'll be some compromised in mobility of the hands and the elbows if that's affected as well correlates with disease chronicity. The longer the disease has been there, the more likely you'll see this on the hands. It also correlates rather strongly with the control of the diabetes. The poorer the control, the greater the likelihood of this. Also affected patients have an increased risk of retinal disease and uh, renal disease. Then we have the exaggerated form of thickened skin, that's scleredema. There's a kitty form of this Uh, primarily on an infectious basis. I'm not talking about this. This is sclerodema linked with diabetes, usually type 2 diabetes, usually a guy, a middle-aged guy who's got a gut and whose diabetes is poorly controlled. He develops these sclerodematous plaques across the shoulders, across the upper back, and the lateral aspects of the arms. So it's pretty much like a cape-like pattern across the upper back and even a little bit on the chest mainly guys, middle-aged, a bit of a gut, and poorly controlled diabetes. Correlates with disease activity, meaning the longer it's been in place and the control of it, which is usually poor. There's also a scleroderma-like syndrome, very rare, very uncommon. Yellow nails and skin, much like the thickened skin seen on the hands, yellow skin also occurs with diabetes. Usually in an older patient, hands and feet and by older, I mean elderly, usually hands and feet. And interestingly, about half of them actually have elevated serum carotene levels, which might account somewhat for the yellow skin, not just the diabetes itself. Again, palms and soles, usually nowhere else. So if you expect someone to walk into your office or clinic with a yellow face, think jaundice from liver disease, not the yellow palms and soles of diabetes. I have no idea why it occurs, and I have no idea about the significance but it is one of the cutaneous features of diabetes. Acquired perforating dermatosis. This is a challenge to dermatologists uh, to treat because it's extremely itchy. Fortunately, it doesn't occur that much. And when it occurs, it is primarily in folks who have end-stage renal disease. Diabetes a distant second. So this occurs with a fair degree of frequency with end-stage renal disease. Typically a guy typically an African-American guy with end-stage renal disease who's on hemodialysis. Can occur with peritoneal dialysis, but usually more hemodialysis. And these are lichenoid, uh, somewhat perforating-like Papules and plaques on the body, usually the extremities, but can affect the trunk as well, and extremely itchy. We've all seen this in the hospital and in clinics. You know they've got kidney disease and or diabetes. They often go hand in hand, and they come to us, what do we do? What do we think? Is this something serious? Well, we know what it is, and we know what to do. It's topical steroids, intralesional steroids, emollients, topical steroids again, ultraviolet therapy, cross fingers, say a prayer, hope for the best. Uh, it's a tough disease to treat, but it goes along with end-stage renal disease and diabetes. Calciphylaxis, a relatively new term in the last 20 years. 25 years ago, you saw a picture of this, or saw a patient with this on the wards, and you say, oh, it's some kind of a vasculitis. Got to do a biopsy, call rheumatology, wonder what's going on, and we walk away as dermatologists because it really represents more of a systemic disease and an expression in the skin of something else. This condition affects primarily women, to a great, great extent. Guys don't get this very often. And like acquired perforating dermatosis, this occurs primarily in women with end-stage renal disease. But it also occurs with a fair degree of regularity with diabetes, fair degree of regularity with simply obesity, and occasionally with secondary hyperparathyroidism. What to do to make the diagnosis? You can do a biopsy. You'll see necrosis, hemorrhage, and if you're lucky, you'll see calcium. You'll also do an x-ray, maybe, and you'll see calcium within the area. And then you should check a calcium level and a parathyroid hormone level as well. And if those numbers are up, you've got the diagnosis, almost irrespective of the morphology. And the morphology is a hemorrhagic, eschar, necrotic-looking plaque, as shown here. You can almost take on a tumor-like look, but it's a big hemorrhagic, vasculitic uh, like plaque, and it likes the fatty parts of the body, the hips, the abdomen, the breasts in a woman. So where there's fat, this is where it occurs. Represents a small vessel vasculopathy, and what do you do? Well, if you're the good dermatologist, you're going to ask for the surgeon to come in and maybe help you clean it and debride it, or actually let the surgeon do that. That's perfectly fine. And then you have to control the primary disease, the end-stage renal disease, the diabetes, and then you want to throw a phosphate binding agent at this. That's what the medical guys would do, the medical women would do, or even a calcimenetic. The product is called Cynocalcet. It's been very helpful in hypercalcemia. It also helps this to a point, but not a great point. Outlook for these patients, poor. Actually, pretty abysmal. Most die. It's as simple as that. The outlook is poor. The mortality is appreciable. Xanthomas, not that common in the general population and not that common with diabetes. The eruptive type of xanthomas affect maybe 1% of the diabetic population at best. And when these little yellow um, papules develop, it's usually on the butt, the buttocks, the elbows, and the knees. And they sprinkle themselves on the skin. And it's usually seen in a patient with diabetes whose diabetes is under poor control and in a patient who also has high triglycerides. If you treat the diabetes, you lower the triglycerides, these disappear. They literally melt away. You don't even know anybody had them. Buttocks, elbows, knees, nice example of one of the hyperlipidemias, also occurs in diabetes, but not that often. Xanthelasma, those are those waxy yellow plaques on the orbits, on the lids and under the eyes. They may occur with or without elevated lipids. They do occur in diabetes. They don't necessarily go away with better control. I just throw that in because you'll see it in a to a fair degree of regularity with diabetes. This I throw in because it was kind of amusing. I never knew about this until a few years ago. This is the H.R. Thiers syndrome, nothing to do with Bruce, who I know very well, but this is the diabetic bearded woman syndrome seen with type two diabetes in women exclusively who have polycystic ovary disease and who have androgen excess. So they have some coarse hair, a deep voice, receding hairline and enlarged clitoris. This doesn't happen very often. But if you see a woman who's growing some hair where she shouldn't be, the voice is deep, she probably has androgen excess, you know that. She has diabetes, she may have everything packaged together, and this is what it looks like. In a young patient, you might treat her, or the endocrinologist might, with oral contraceptives, and in an older patient, an anti-androgen. Granuloma annulare. when I was a resident, and said, oh, it's gotta be diabetes, ask about diabetes, family history, blah, 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 There is really no link with diabetes, none, except in the generalized form of GA. The single isolated plaque or two or three of GA occurs in the general population without any link to any disease whatsoever, none. It occurs in kids, young adults, but when it's generalized or disseminated, generalized is a better term, it may be in concert or in conjunction with diabetes. And these annular plaques are not itchy. There's no scale. If you're uncertain of the diagnosis, do a biopsy and you'll see the, uh, the granuloma formation. Cutaneous infections with type 2 diabetes, very, very common and may actually be the first sign of the disease, especially if it's candidiasis. And they cover the gamut of infections, yeast and fungal disease, bacterial infections, Viral infections don't really appear very much, and then we have some rare infections, but it's yeast and fungi, primarily yeast, candidiasis, and bacterial infections, staph, strep, and something called erythrasma, which I'll show a nice picture of. Candidal infections may actually be the first sign of diabetes, and when they occur in a diabetic, even not being the first sign, they're often more pronounced, more chronic, and more severe, so keep that in mind. And the common candidal infections, in no particular order, paronychia, you know what that is. Inflammation with infection around the nail. Sometimes it's not infected, it's just inflamed, and a topical corticosteroid will work very well, but sometimes it often is candidiasis, and you need an oral agent, or at least some rigorous aeration and topical care to subdue that paronychial candidiasis. Angular chelitis, very common, in, fairly fairly common in the general population, especially in oldsters as they get a little crease at the side of the mouth. They trap moisture, saliva, food, toothpaste, et cetera, and it just acts as an irritation, not necessarily an infection. But if you start to see perlesh or angular chelitis in a younger person, that's everybody in the room, right? Right, good, work with me. It's Saturday afternoon. Uh, think of candidiasis. That individual may have diabetes and is just producing these candidal infections at the corner of the mouth and in the mouth as well. Then you need something like a topical anti-candidal agent, uh, nystatin, something else in the antifungal range, mouthwash included, aeration just like you would do in, in an oldster. Intertrigo, very commonly, we very common occurrence. We think of as sort of this innocuous condition in, in folks who are heavy especially in warm humid climates or during the summer months no matter where you are in a woman it could be under the breasts in a man or a woman if they're a little heavy it's under the arms the abdominal folds in the groins aeration aeration you start fanning the, the, the sites you throw on a topical anti yeast antifungal life is good but if it's chronic if it's repetitive that person may indeed have diabetes and if the person has diabetes don't be surprised by the chronicity of it. What those patients need to do, lose some weight, keep the areas dry and aerated, use an absorbing powder, something like Z-Sorb. I know I shouldn't mention a trade name, but Zsorb is nice. It helps to suck up the moisture. You throw in Z-Sorb AF, it's antifungal as well. It's a nice way of keeping those skin folds dry with, so the yeast organism doesn't take hold. And obviously in a woman also a vulva vaginitis, it may be because of chronic antibiotic use, it could be because of diabetes. And then lastly, the last bullet is a long Latin phrase, erosio interdigitalis blastomycetica. What the hell is that? It's candidizers in the third space where you wear your ring finger, where your ring finger is. It just is red and flaky. You can think of a dermatitis from your ring but actually in a diabetic or someone who's a little heavy, air doesn't get there, it's actually candidiasis in that space. Not the first space or the second one, but the third, between the third and the fourth finger. Uh, And you treat it, aeration, topical antifungal, anti-yeast works just fine. Bacterial infections really, as I said here, run the gamut. Staph, strep, erysipelas-like changes can be localized, can be extensive, can be very debilitating. You need to keep your eye attuned to something like this because diabetics are much, much more prone to infection with yeast, uh, dermatophyte, as well as bacteria, and bacteria probably even more so. And one condition that I like to mention, because it is probably more common than we think it is, is erythrasma, a bacterial infection in intertriginous areas caused by bacteria. Minutissimum, meaning minute, and you don't know the patient has this unless you get a Woods light in a dark room and you shine it on the rash. I think most of us, and I'll take offense, I'll include myself here, when we see a rash like that, scalloped annular plaques in the groin of a guy, we say, Ah, jock itch, jock rash. It's tinea cruris. We throw on ketoconazole or some other imidazole, Uh, Lamisil, over-the-counter, et cetera, terbenafine, and life is good. We don't see the patient for a while. He comes back six or eight months later, still got it, and doc, it didn't do anything. I didn't want to say anything, but he still got it. Then you get the woods light and you shine it. And if you see fluorescence, what you're really seeing is a porphyrin fluorescing with the woods light, you've got a bacterial infection, not a fungal infection. So when you see this, think truly of tinea, a dermatophyte, Uh, if the KOH is negative, or you want to do the wood's light first and it fluoresces, this is the diagnosis. What do you treat this with? A topical antibiotic. Erythromycin still has a place. You treat this with erythromycin or clindamycin. Twice, even three times a day, 10 days, two weeks, it's gone. Pigmentary change may stay for a while, but very common in the general population as far as weight is concerned, and very common also in diabetics. So just think of it. It may not be dermatophyte. It may be truly bacterial. Dermatified infections, common with diabetes, but with no greater frequency. They're probably just as common in the general population. So you think of tinea cruris. Now, this is indeed tinea cruris. If you want to shine a woods light on this, that's fine. If the woods light exam is negative, you can almost make the strong assumption that it's tinea cruris and you treat it empirically with an antifungal and life is good. Rare infections, literally just that. Rare, I won't even get into it. Rhinocerebral nucleotidum mycosis can produce CNS disease with cerebral involvement and death. Very, very uncommon. Some others as well, not all that important. Vascular disease and diabetes. Vascular disease occurs primarily on the feet, less so the hands, to produce ulcers that look like this. Vascular compromise, macrovascular disease, microvascular disease, and secondary ulceration. This is out of our domain. This goes off to the orthopedic people or the vascular surgeons with likely heroic measures to try to save the foot, but it might require amputation with a look like that. Neurocutaneous disease, diabetes does, can produce neuropathy, usually with a, a sense of decreased sweating and decreased sensation on the skin, usually the acral parts of the body, the hands and especially the feet. With that neuropathy, you can get ulceration. Uh, neurotropic ulcers, sensorial ulcers might lead to see the uh, orthopedic guy or woman the uh, podiatrist as well and may actually come to amputation if indeed orthopedic maneuvers with orthotics don't really help matters reactions to insulin, insulin has been around now for what uh, 80 years give or take reactions to insulin are few and far between primarily because the uh, condition of um, The form of insulin now is much, much more purified than it was say 20, 30, 40 years ago. Most of the reactions today are due to impurities, either the beef or the pork components, sometimes preservatives as as well, but true allergic reactions, few and far between, probably closer to 5% of the time. The more common reactions when they come on the two bottom lines, immediate and delayed and atrophic or hypertrophic reactions. The immediate type of reaction is usually very localized. It happens very quickly, within 5, 10 minutes, maybe 15 or 20, and subsides very quickly. You turn away, you walk out of the room, you go to another room, you go to the bathroom, you come back. Patient said, I had something. Where is it? I don't know. It went away. Things that go away are good. It comes quickly. It leaves quickly. Can be generalized, looking like a morbilliform exanthematous rash, quote-unquote, maybe even with hives, usually short-lived, fades away, disappears very quickly. Delayed hypersensitivity reaction takes a few hours, maybe a day or more, uh, and it is the most common reaction, but it doesn't occur that often. These are the interesting reactions, lipoatrophy, primarily in obese patients with diabetes or kids, and it's not because of the insulin being injected. It can happen that way, but it happens usually within six months to two years, give or take, and it's a lipolytic effect from the insulin, maybe over a long period of time because of immune complex deposition in the affected site. But it doesn't have to follow where the insulin was injected. Actually most of it is on the extremities, and insulin is usually injected abdomen, thighs. Hypertrophic uh, reactions or hypertrophy, uh, these are lipoma-like masses, lumps and bumps. Feels like a lipoma, smells like a lipoma, but if they receive insulin along the way, this is simply a lipo- lipoma-like change secondary to a lipogenic effect, meaning the insulin is stimulating the production of fat and a localized deposition. Miscellaneous reactions, they fall, you know, purpura or keloids, not very important. So diabetes in the skin, the key point is, the key points, skin disease is fairly common, it affects about 30 to 50 percent of patients with diabetes diabetic dermopathy is more than like as probably the most common manifestation and skin infections may be a precursor the first sign of diabetes, potentially serious. And the better you treat, or the better the endocrinologist treats skin, uh, the diabetes, the less likelihood the patient will have skin problems, manifestation, or untoward sequelae in the skin. Okay, I'm done with diabetes. We have about 10 minutes to go. I'm going to change gears because the topic was endocrine. What else can be Can affect the skin in the endocrine arena. Thyroid can. Thyroid conditions. This is simply an introductory slide. I like the bug-eye look of someone with hyperthyroidism. Okay. Thyroid disease in the skin. Two specific findings are number one, thyroglossal duct cyst. This is a remnant of an embryonic duct. It is the most, it's a very common occurrence and it's the most common cystic abnormality of the neck is a thyroglossal duct cyst. It's just a lump, a mass, right in the sternal area just around the neck, uh, in the front part of the neck. It's of no significance, that's gonna go to the head and neck surgeon, not to the dermatologist, but it's a fullness in the neck because of a cyst, that's it. Cancer can occur, thyroid malignancy, primarily a papillary adenocarcinoma, which very rarely if ever metastasizes or spreads to the skin either in a continuous or contiguous fashion. It's of no relevance except for the fact of where it's located. You'll see a fullness in the neck perhaps and say, gee that doesn't look right, you need to see your family doc or a head and neck surgeon for a blessing. Uh, MEN syndrome, uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome, also known as sipple syndrome, Type 2A has no skin manifestations essentially whatsoever. The type 2 or type or, or number 3 syndrome does, and it's mainly, mainly mucosal neuromas. That's good if you're getting ready for a board exam, whether you're a derm resident, a PA, or getting ready for maintenance or certification, you need to know that. Cowden syndrome has thyroid implications. Most of the cutaneous manifestations are very nondescript. You might think of it, but you really need to do a biopsy. Tricholomomas are very vague, nondescript papules on the face. Acral that could be seborrheic or actinic or benign lichenoid keratosis. It just gives you a sense of it. Oral papillomas makes you think of it a little bit. Hyperthyroidism, though, has some particularly unique links. One is the dermopathy, or what we usually call pretibial myxedema. These are these waxy, pebbled-like plaques, usually bilateral. Symmetric on both shins. Exophthalmos, I showed one slide, I'll show another, the prominent bug eyes of, of the orbits. acropachy it's a clubbing of the finger. The finger looks like a club, some soft tissue swelling at the tips. Don't see this much, or maybe we do see it and we just don't appreciate it. Hypertrichosis, a little extra hair growth, usually on the face, much like you would see in porphyria cutanea tarda, and sometimes with carcinoid syndrome. And lastly is plumber nails. These are concave depressions in the nails, usually with onycholysis. So the nail is concave, it's kind of scooped like a shovel, and the nail is lifted up onycholysis like you'd see with psoriasis. And here are a few pictures. The bug-eye look of exophthalmos, those eyes look like they're just going to come out and grab you. The pretibial myxedema, these are those waxy pebbled like plaques on the shins usually know itch, you take a quick look and you say, gee, it's dermatitis. If it was just one leg, you'd say maybe NLD, maybe cellulitis. But the brown, dusky-like look in the, in the background of hyperthyroidism says this is pretibial myxedema. Acropachy, use your imagination, that finger on your left, right? Correct, on the left, looks like a little bit of a club. The fingernail itself, you'd say, "Gee, I really don't know what the hell it is, but it's not going to hurt you. Go home. Don't worry about it, etc." But it's actually what's called a plumber nail, named after the individual who described it—not a plumber, a guy that works with pipes, spelled differently. Concave deformity and lifting up of the nail, onycholysis, much like you would see with um, psoriasis. And this is the woman. I think it's a woman who might have a bit slow feature, a little bit slow speech. Her mannerisms may be a little muted and slow. She has hypothyroidism. There's no life to her and she has these prominent edematous orbits. So I just exaggerated. I hope you can appreciate that here. So pretibial myxedema goes with hyperthyroidism but myxedematous changes on the skin go with hypothyroidism. And what you usually see in hypothyroidism is kind of a uh, a cool, pasty, slimy skin. When you touch it, it just doesn't feel right. Kind of, yeah. You, know, you want to? Eh, not going to hold hands with her or him, whatever. Sometimes the lips can be swollen. The lip, the, the nose can be a little broad, and the and the tongue can be a bit big. Like you see with macroglossia and amyloidosis. There might be a little bit of a yellow color to the skin in general, not just the hands and the feet, as I showed before with type one diabetes. Uh, the yellowness may be all over like you'd see in renal disease, someone with cirrhosis Uh, and the hair can be very fine and thin sometimes brittle, coarse like straw and the individual might actually be losing hair be it man or woman and a nice sign, and I've seen this a number of times is the loss of hair on the lateral aspect of the eyebrows so here are some pictures, a woman with hair loss you'd probably evaluate her for androgenetic alopecia but she happens to have hypothyroidism with fine thinning hair. Lateral eyebrow, different patient, hair is lost. A big tongue, broad nose, big lips or bigger lips. Now, there are a lot of conditions. There are some ethnic variations with the lips. There's a wide ethnic variation with the nose, uh, completely so. I mean, no one's got that perfect nose for the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine or GQ. If I'm going too fast, I can slow down, but I'm not. And sometimes a big tongue. Work with me. It's Saturday afternoon. We're all stuck here, you know. <laughs> okay. Near the end point. You know where the diagnosis is by the lower right-hand corner. I add this, not linked with endocrine disease, really, but dermatitis or is a very itchy disease. So itchy that the fine papules and vesicles are broken very quickly and readily by the scratching an individual does. Intensely itchy disease. It's an immunoblistering disease. Uh, You can slap a topical corticosteroid on this, see the patient in a month. He or she is still going to be complaining of this and saying, doc, it's no better. It's no better. What do I do now? And you say, okay, let me look a little bit more. It's got on the back of his neck, his shoulders, between the scapula, elbows, knees, and you say, gee, could be DH, dermatitis or pediformis. You do a biopsy. It shows deposition of neutrophils. Uh, it shows a neutrophilic infiltration and immunofluorescence deposition of IgA neither either a globular or a linear pattern at the dermal-epidermal junction. So you've got the diagnosis. You treat them with a gluten-free diet. You hope for the best, and that may work about 10% of the time. And then you really become the hero if you throw a sulfone, a dapsone at him or her. So why did I include this? I included it because a third of patients are hypothyroid. So this is somewhat of a link with hypothyroidism and vice versa. The real link here is gluten-sensitive enteropathy in about 70, 75, almost 80% of patients. Unfortunately, that gluten-sensitive enteropathy is asymptomatic. But there is a link with thyroid disease, hypothyroidism. The rest doesn't really matter. Pyritis, we think of paritis in the realm of dermatology and it's usually dermatitic infestation. If the skin is unaffected, the skin looks good and it's normal. We'll think of medication producing perhaps the itch without the rash. We'll think of dermatographism, kind of a a, a pressure kind of phenomenon that can produce itchiness. And then we perform the masochistic thought of, gee, what could this be that I haven't thought of? And we go through the, the battery of tests and they usually turn out to be normal or negative. But we'll think of things like diabetes, kidney disease, Liver disease, and if you have one of those, you're home free. You can say, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, it's probably the diabetes, or the anemia, or the kidney trouble, or the liver trouble. Life goes on. We treat it symptomatically. We lather her up in emollients, and life goes on. But itching and endocrine disease, a little bit common in thyrotoxicosis, meaning hyperthyroidism. Don't see it that much. The endocrine folks do. Hypothyroidism, it occurs to some degree. And postmenopausal itch is a real entity. But the other conditions really lead the path. Uh, plow the path for us: chronic renal disease, malignancy, hepatic disease, cholecystasis, drug sensitivity, et cetera. I'm going to wrap it up with the porphyrias. Porphyrias are a group of uh, abnormalities of heme biosynthesis. Predicated on either a lack of a particular enzyme or a deficiency of a particular enzyme. Every porphyria has an enzyme abnormality, lack of or deficiency of. It's either the porphyries are either erythropoietic, meaning blood cell related, hepatic in nature, or mixed, a little bit of both. Uh, the porphyries as a whole are listed here. There are a few other subsets, but these are most of them. And the picture is because King George III probably had variegate. Porphyria, there's a good movie about this, I think, 10, 12 years ago, if you never saw it, it's The Madness of King George. He probably had porphyria, that's what drove him nuts. Okay, Uh, porphyria cutanea tarda is the most common porphyria, period. It by far leads the pack. It has significant cutaneous manifestations, photosensitivity, and the rash is usually blisters, erosions, hyperpigmentation, and hypotrichosis, extra hair growth. And the abnormality here is a lack or deficiency of uroporphyrinogen decarboxylase, which is necessary to convert uroporphyrin to coproporphyrin in the urine and the serum. Uh, If you have that abnormality, you've got the diagnosis. What do you do for this? You avoid one of the triggers. Usually there's a trigger. Alcohol, hepatitis C, estrogens. Uh, chemicals, hydrocarbons, etc. You avoid the trigger. You remove the trigger, and then you treat with either phlebotomy or uh, an antimalarial. Now, of those porphyrias I mentioned, one has no cutaneous manifestations at all. That's AIP, acute intermittent porphyria. All of the others have cutaneous manifestations. Some like PCT, some a little different. We won't get into that. Porphyria cutanea tarda also has a cousin called pseudoporphyria, which looks like PCT, smells like PCT, behaves like PCT, same photosensitivity, skin fragility, erosions and blisters on the hands, etc. But no enzyme deficiency, no enzyme lack thereof. It is brought on by medicines, usually nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like naproxen, Uh, can be brought on by furosemide. A diuretic can be brought on by hemodialysis. But otherwise, it looks and smells just like PCT. Lastly, hepatitis C, since I mentioned it, has a few skin conditions linked to it, leukocytoclastic vasculitis, LP being the main ones, and PCT, as I already mentioned. That is the end. I thank you for your time and attention. Whoa! Here we are, San Diego. Okay, now we do the post test. Question one Percent of the US population with diabetes? 10, 35, 50, or 75? Be Better than before. I think the group said before. What was it before? I don't know. Yeah, the correct answer is indeed 10%. Sometimes we'll think it's a little bit more. We encounter a lot of patients with diabetes, so you got something out of that. It's only about 10%, which is still a very big number in this country, especially when you throw in folks who have diabetes and don't know it, and those who are in the category of flirting with the condition, close to 50, 60 million people. Next question, most common skin manifestation of diabetes, into trigo, acanthosis nigricans, NLD, Necrobiosis lipoidica, or Diabetic Dermopathy? Survey says, correct, Diabetic Dermopathy. For those who picked the other things, you really weren't listening to what I said. I said that about a couple of times. Come on, folks. The most common form, invariably, all right. Uh, is there improvement here? I think, yes, there is, right? Right. First, second cycle. So we got it. So we went from acanthosis to nigricans, which is a logical thought, say, oh, acanthosis, we think of diabetes, good, but it's not the most common form. Diabetic dermopathy, which is really very nondescript. Patients don't even show you their legs sometimes unless you look. Number three, regarding calciphylaxis, all are true except occurs primarily in women, occurs primarily with end-stage renal disease, has a good prognosis, eh, and affects fatty muscular areas or fatty areas. I flavored it a little bit. We're into the witching hour. Have to help the effort. Uh, Survey says, ah, has a good prognosis. Right. That is categorically false. It has a P-poor prognosis with high mortality. Well done. Next. Uh, How do we compare? That doesn't... Oh, we compare very well. Look, you got something out of it. Number four, the only porphyria, I almost didn't mention this, without skin expression, without skin expression, AIP, Porphyria, cutanea, tarda. come on, we know that one. Mixed porphyria or variegate, which probably is the one that King George III had. Music. Survey says. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have to look, because I'm looking for a yellow bar, too. Uh, Correct. AIP, also known as Swedish porphyria, is the only known porphyria without any skin expression whatsoever. I think that's it for the questions. Ah, very well done. Nicely done. And better than the pretest. Good. So you got something out of it. Uh, what's next? Brian, help me out. Ah, the evaluation. Okay. You know what to do here. The overall performance of the speaker. I hear a five. Do I hear a five? How useful, useful will this session be in your practice? Should be pretty useful, I would think. Gives you a different way of thinking about diabetes and the skin. I would think you would find it. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Absolutely. Oh. Questions or no? Brian, you tell me. Three. Elevated vitamin D levels in a patient getting phototherapy. When should I be concerned? Well, I didn't talk about phototherapy, and I didn't talk about vitamin D. So I'm going to the next question. Can necrobiosis lipoidica be difficult to distinguish from complicated venous... In actuality, no. Venous stasis changes are usually, not always, but usually in a middle-aged or older individual with venous insufficiency, so that's pigmentary changes on both legs, varicosities, and the stasis changes are usually focused around the ankles. Not always, but usually the case. NLD is in a younger or older individual, usually a woman compared to a guy, and on the shins with thin atrophic brown-orange plaques. So I think the distinguishing feature morphologically is relatively easy and straightforward. Uh, NLD is not necessarily bilateral. It can be unilateral. Stasis disease is usually bilateral, but not always. And again, around the ankles, venous insufficiency, uh, prominent varicosities, some edema as well. Next question: Any good supportive care for oral lichen planus that works? Supportive care. You I mean other than prayer and light a candle? The best thing would probably be topical corticosteroid, something in the gel formulation, and the more potent, the better off you are. So to use, let's see, lidex is what fluocinonide. Uh, you can take fluocinonide on your fingertip and rub it on the areas. It provides decent symptomatic relief. Clobetasol, halobetasol in gel form also does the trick and you can use a strong, potent corticosteroid in the mouth. You can also use it on the tongue, not only the inner part of the cheeks. And for symptomatic control, a simple measure could simply be Benadryl elixir. You know, the liquid form of Benadryl, it's available over the counter. Take a sip, swig, swish it around for a minute or two, spit it out it can provide some symptomatic relief without the use of corticosteroids or in conjunction with corticosteroids. That's it, no more questions, I'm done, I'm off the hook, case closed, it's a wrap, thanks. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.